and sisters, it is a joy to be able once again to open God's Word with you. And so let's do that now. Let's open up in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And as you were doing, please stand for the reading of God's Holy Word. 1 Timothy chapter 5. As you know, we are continuing to make our trek through Paul's first letter to his young protege, Timothy. And uh, we find ourselves this morning in 1 Timothy 5, beginning in verse 17. And Lord willing, we will finish the chapter this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. As Pastor Justin has already said, this is the word of God. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear what Christ would say to the churches. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are cannot remain hidden. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Go ahead and be seated, brothers and sisters. This morning, we are going to take up the topic of church polity. Now, I know you're all very excited. Uh, Church polity is how a church operates or is governed. And I will concede to you at the front end that this is usually the last thing that Christians think about. This is not something that we generally get all that excited about. And if we're honest, I would say there's good reason for that. Why would we as a people want to get weighed down with organizational charts when we can rejoice in Christ? Why would we spend our time crossing T's and dotting our I's with respect to, uh, I don't know, ordination and, and pastoral policies when we can celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ crucified for us? Brothers and sisters, if it's the choice between uh, pastoral policies and salaries and ordination or Christ's life, death, and burial resurrection, well, we know which one of those causes our hearts to sing. And rightfully so. But just because church polity isn't the greatest thing, that doesn't mean it's not a good thing. In fact, it's the good thing, church polity, that actually helps protect the greatest thing, the gospel. So authority and structure and leadership, according to God's word, these are all good things. They matter, and they matter to Christ because Christ's church matters to Christ. The Lord Jesus, he has shed his blood for us, forgiving us all our sins. He has imputed to us his very righteousness so that we stand right in God's sight. And he has gifted us his Holy Spirit so that we might live as he has called us to live. 
And that good news, the good news of the gospel, what I want you to see is that it comes to affect all things, even church polity. So when it comes to church polity, we are going to focus this morning specifically on elders. And more to the point, we are going to seek to answer three questions about elders. How do you compensate them? How do you correct them? And how do you choose them? Those are the questions that we're going to tackle. But before we do, I want to spend a brief moment and bring us all up to speed on elders. It it is my very limited experience, but my experience nonetheless, that many Christians, they really struggle with understanding who elders are or or what they do or or things of that nature. So what I'm going to do is give you a real quick crash course on elders. And I mean like real quick. When the New Testament is talking about elders, what the New Testament is talking about is a group, that's more than one, of qualified, that means it's just not open to anybody, men who lead a local church. It's a group of qualified men who lead a local congregation. And you remember, we met the elders back in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It is there where we were exposed to the qualifications that elders have to meet. We also noted then, and we'll repeat it this morning, that the main duty of elders is to oversee the spiritual health of a local church. That is their main job, to oversee the spiritual health of the congregation. We know this from a couple of different texts. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 tells us, speaking of the elders, or to the elders rather, pay careful attention to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, elders are those who oversee. They they watch out and they are to care for the church. Or you might consider Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. We are told, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. So what does the leadership in a church do? But they keep watch over the souls of that church. So that's what we're talking about this morning. In our passage, 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, these men are called elders. Other times, they are overseers, like in Acts chapter 20. Hebrews 13 refers to them as leaders. And the Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, calls them shepherds or pastors. But what you have to understand is that all of these terms, they are used interchangeably in the New Testament. When we are talking about elders or pastors or overseers or leaders, what the Bible is saying is this is all the same group. And these men, they are called to the immense privilege and responsibility of caring for the spiritual health of the church. And because of the immense responsibility, we are told that elders are to be compensated. 
That's really the first thing that Paul would have us to see this morning. How are we to compensate elders? We are told, verse 17, that the elders who rule well, they should be considered worthy of double honor. And so the question immediately becomes, well, when it comes to this compensation, what does verse 17's double honor mean? Now, some have suggested that the elders should receive twice as much compensation as the widows who are on the roll. You'll remember that from last week. Others have suggested that double honor means that certain elders, uh, in our context generally refer to these as senior pastors or the paid pastor or the preaching pastor, that, that such an individual should receive double the compensation of the, the lay elders for a lack of better words. The way I approach this, I, I think it's instead of sort of like grabbing a calculator and crunching numbers, it seems to me that the phrase there, double honor, has something slightly else in mind. And, and, and better said, it says something more. In fact, it might be better to translate that phrase in verse 17 as twofold honor. And the twofold honor, beloved, is both, please hear this, reverence and recompense. It is respect and remuneration. Think back to the widows that we saw last week in chapter 5, verse 3. We are told in chapter 5, verse 3, that we are to honor widows who are truly widows. We are to honor them. And that's the same flavor that we have here. Just as widows are to be given a measure of respect and they are to be financially taken care of, so the elders of a church are to be given honor and an honorarium. This is why in a lot of churches, elders are often addressed as pastor or reverend and not simply by their first name. It's a way that the congregation shows respect. It's a way that the congregation shows honor. This is also why the minister of the congregation receives a salary. Some, some people think that that's just custom or it's sort of tradition, but it actually comes right here from the Word of God. Now, with all that being said, there is an asterisk here with this whole thing, isn't there? The elders who are to be considered worthy of double honor, they are to be those who, verse 17, rule well. So this reverence and recompense, it is reserved for those who have both hands to the plow. These are the elders who are busy caring for the church. They, they are spending their day overseeing the spiritual state of the flock. And they are, end of verse 17, laboring in preaching and teaching. That's their life. They are men of the book. They spend their days praying and preparing and preaching. Now, we should note in passing that this is how the elders rule well. Sometimes we hear that language of rule well, and we might think of an iron fist. We might think of a rod. But that's not the thrust. That is not how elders rule well. Nor do elders rule well by being gifted administrators or event coordinators. The elders rule well 
when they give themselves over to the word, when they give themselves over to the work of preaching and teaching. We might just say it this way. Elders rule well, verse 17, by spending their time preparing and proclaiming the life-giving message of Jesus Christ. That's their work. They feed on Christ. They feed on his beauty and his perfection and his glory and his sufficiency. And they feed on Christ because Christ is good for their souls. And then they in turn can feed the people of God Christ because Christ is good for your souls. And all of this is work. At least it's supposed to be. In fact, the word there in verse 17, the word labor, literally, it's toil or work hard. The point? No sloth here. Elders are to be men who are sweating over the word of God. They're, 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 they're spending their time and their energy so they can rightly understand what it is that God is saying in his word. These are men who are ministering the Word of God, and they're pouring over the Word of God, and they're pouring out the Word of God. Their life work is not just to master the Word, though it is, but also to be mastered by that same Word. And that is work. It is work, beloved. And because it is work, they ought to be compensated. Now, it It has not escaped me how self-serving all of this sounds. But I would remind you, this is not my opinion. It's not like Ryan needs a new pair of shoes. It's not it. It's not my opinion. And I would have you to notice, this isn't even Paul's opinion. I say that because if you notice in verse 18, Paul grounds his argument, not in self, but in Scripture. That is to say, verse 18 gives us the reason for verse 17. That makes sense? He says, for Scripture says, not Paul says, but Scripture says what? You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So you see what's happening here? Elders who rule well by laboring in preaching and teaching, they ought to receive double honor. Why? Well, for the simple reason, because that's what God's word says. Now, in making his case, the Apostle Paul appeals to two texts. The first is from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. God's law is clear. An animal that treads out the grain, it shouldn't be muzzled. Why? Because that animal is to be feeding itself by the work that it is performing. So they would often put a post in the middle of a field and they would tie a critter to it and that critter would walk in circles and stomp around and break up the grain. And as the animal is circling, he should be able to put his face down and go. He should feed himself by the work he is performing. That's the picture that is being drawn upon. And what Paul is doing here in 1 Timothy is saying this. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, is God only concerned for critters? Does he only care about four-legged beasts? Of course not. So catch this. Paul is applying 
an Old Testament law regarding animal husbandry to the life of the church to ensure that its minister is fairly compensated. That's staggering. Now, I'm not going to camp here, but I just want to say in passing, this is just one example of many where the New Testament quotes an Old Testament passage and applies it to the life of the church. Now, the second text that Paul refers to is from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. And these are actually Christ's words himself. Christ says, the laborer deserves his wages. Or if I can turn the screw a little bit and set it in the middle of the context of 1 Timothy 5, the elder who is laboring and preaching and teaching, he is entitled to compensation for his work. To use the words of Christ, again, these aren't mine, he deserves his wages. He's entitled to them. They are his. Now, I would have you to know that in some contexts, this whole thing chafes. It's been said by some, well, the pastor has his reward. It's heaven. He doesn't need anything else. Others have gone so far as to suggest that if the pastor is to be paid, he should be paid as little as possible. That way, it keeps him prayerful and humble. Well, brothers and sisters, we just need to call that what it is. And that attitude is plain and simple, ugly sin. It is sin for a congregation not to pay its pastor. Likewise, it is sin to intentionally skimp on paying the pastor if the congregation has means to do otherwise. The reason, you ask? Well, not only shouldn't the pastor be muzzled as he treads out the grain of God's word, and not only, according to Christ, does he deserve his wages— But if the pastor's life is always in the red and he is forced to find another source of income, then it will immediately cause the heart of that man to be divided. Instead of being completely immersed in the Word of God and praying for the people of God and ministering to the Word of God and preaching to the Word of God, he will spend half his time bagging groceries. And while there was nothing inherently wrong with bagging groceries, you have to understand that if the heart of the shepherd is divided, then it will come to affect the sheep as well. I would also say, on top of all of this, please recognize that just like you, the pastor has a mortgage and health insurance and taxes and the car needs new tires and the little one wants a bike for her birthday. And the wife has been poking and prodding for a vacation for quite some time. Now, lest I be misunderstood, I'm not talking about me in the slightest. I want to be as clear as I can. I have always considered myself to be more than taken care of, taken care of financially. Our family is extremely grateful for the way the elders and this congregation have supported us. But you have to understand, not every minister of the gospel has that luxury. I know pastors who are struggling to get by. I know men who are losing weight, and not on purpose. And Paul's point is, it ought not to be that way. Church, take care of your preaching pastor. And don't just take care of him, but be generous. After all, he is your shepherd. 
And one of the ways the chief shepherd is glorified is when under-shepherds are honored. So we've seen the need to compensate an elder. Let me shift gears with you now and see how we are to correct an elder. What happens if the pastors, if the elders begin to go sideways? Again, this is a church polity question. And so how is the church to navigate these tumultuous waters? How are we to avoid running aground? Let me give you three words. Here they are. Reject, rebuke, and righteous. Reject, rebuke, and righteous. For starters, when it comes to correcting an elder, we should reject any unaccompanied accusations. That's what verse 9 tells us. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. I want you to notice this is courtroom language. This is legal language drawn from, again, Old Testament law. And it is clearly designed to protect the elder. We would say today, this man is to be innocent until proven guilty. And so what this means, practically speaking, is that it is not enough for just one person to wave a yellow flag or even a red flag. And that is because the elder is a trusted man. He is qualified. He has been examined. He has been called by Christ. He has been commissioned by the Holy Spirit. And he has been confirmed by the local church for gospel ministry. And therefore, for any charge or accusation to stick, that charge or accusation must have at least two or three witnesses. That way it does not devolve into a he said, she said type of scenario. I know it's all in vogue over the last couple of years from the Me Too movement to believe all women, that type of stuff. With all due respect, the Bible says nonsense. We do not believe all women, and we do not believe all men. The Bible says that we must have two or three witnesses. And again, that is because what the Bible is concerned about is truth. It's truth. Now, I should add that the church member is afforded the same protection when it comes to the discipline of the church as the elder is. Whether we are talking about Matthew 18 and church discipline for the member, or we are talking about 1 Timothy 5 and church discipline for the elder, in both cases, again, what we are after, beloved, is truth. In both cases, the aim is to establish guilt and to prevent false accusations. What is unique, though, with respect to the elder is that an elder may not even be accused of a sin without multiple witnesses. However, none of this means that the elder is above the law. Which brings us to our second word, rebuke. The sinning elder must be rebuked. Verse 20 is clear. As for those, that is for elders, as for those elders who persist in sin, do what? Rebuke them, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So verse 20 is clear. Elders are not above the law. 
If they are in sin, and if the accusation has multiple witnesses, and through the court of the church it has been determined that this particular elder is guilty of that sin, then the judgment must be swift. No hymn-hawing, no dragging of the feet. If the verdict comes back guilty, then the elder is subject to the discipline of the church. Again, just like everyone else's. On top of that, we are told that the elder is to be rebuked in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear, verse 20. This is, again, church discipline language reminiscent of Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. If the elder refuses to repent, if he persists in headlong sin and he's running toward death, then please hear this. The single most loving thing the congregation can do is rebuke him. And that rebuke is to be public, verse 20 again, in the presence of all. It is to be public because the elder is a public figure. I want to just sort of pause here and offer something of a parenthesis. I want to be very clear. I, I recognize that, that some of this language of church discipline, it may be new to some of you, or you might be bringing baggage with you. I, I understand that we all come from sort of various walks of life. But, but I want you to understand something, that church discipline is a good thing. It's actually a loving thing. It's a kind thing. It is a biblical thing. Now, I realize in a culture like ours, one that is awash with sentimentalism, the air that we breathe is one where we are always supposed to accept everybody and all the decisions that they make. I realize that living in that world, this sort of language of church discipline, it can sound judgy. It can sound harsh. But here's the deal. It's not harsh for a surgeon to remove the tumor. It's not judgy for a mom to grab her little one if this little toddler is running out towards oncoming traffic. It's not judgy or harsh, but rather in both cases, it is loving. Christ did not come on a rescue mission for us so that we would stay in our sin. Christ did not die on the cross so that we could stay under sin's dominion. The Lord Jesus didn't bear in his own body the penalty for our sin and the wrath of God against our sin so that you and I could cuddle up to sin. Christ came. He came. He he was born. He lived. He died. He was raised from the dead. Christ did this to defeat sin, not in some abstract way, but to defeat sin in you, to defeat the sin that condemns you and to defeat the sin that controls you. Christ came to liberate his people. And so when an elder or a church member, a a Christian, that's what we're talking about, When a Christian goes sideways, and instead of stabbing sin and fighting sin, now all of a sudden that individual is petting sin and cuddling up to sin. Then the most loving and kind and gracious thing a church can do 
is blow the whistle and call a foul. To not do so. Think about this. For the surgeon to not tell his patient about the x-ray and the tumor because, you know, a, a surgery would leave some nasty scars. For the mom to just let her three-year-old run into oncoming traffic because, you know, I've told her before, she's got to learn her lesson sometime. For the surgeon or the mother to do that, would that not be dereliction of the highest order? In the case of the church, it would be spiritual malpractice. Now, lest I'm misunderstood, are we perfect people? No. Do we continue to sin? Of course we do. But you have to recognize that one of the character traits that separates Christians from non-Christians is not, do you go to church? Did you grow up in a Christian home? Did you repeat a prayer at VBS? That is not what separates Christians from non-Christians. Do you know what separates Christians from non-Christians? It's one word. It's repentance. That is what separates Christians from non-Christians. When confronted with sin, Christians repent. And Christians repent, please hear this, not, not because we are better people. We repent because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. This is why the Scriptures refer to the Spirit of God as the Holy Spirit, because He is holy, holy, and what He indwells and inhabits, what the Holy Spirit puts His hands on, He makes holy. This is why Christ died for us. Christ did not die to leave us in our sins. Christ did not die to leave us the people that we are. Christ died to redeem and to recreate. Christ died to save and also to sanctify. Christ has robed us with his very righteousness. That's justification. Praise God. But also, Christ has given us his spirit so that we would begin to walk in righteousness. And that's sanctification. And so what I, what I want you guys to see is that church discipline, all of this, th this is all a means of grace. It's all intended to fix our eyes upon Jesus, to lead us to him. And when our eyes are fixed upon Jesus, we will, by definition, turn from our sin so that we can turn toward him. But when professing Christians, whether it be members or elders, when they won't turn from their sin, when they won't turn from their sin and embrace Jesus by faith, then again, the most loving thing the church can do is mete out the hammer of God's discipline. Again, that's what you see right here in 1 Timothy 5. Now in all of this, and here's our third word, this is all to be done righteously. In other words, there is to be no favoritism, no partiality, no good old boys club when it comes to the elders. The elders must be held accountable. That's what verse 21 is getting at. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, Paul's saying, right, like, this is a big deal. 
I charge you, I command you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Paul's saying truth is truth, evidence is evidence, guilt is guilt. We have to call balls and strikes, not just for those out there and not just for those right here, but for these guys too. We have to call balls and strikes. Doesn't matter how long you've been an elder, doesn't matter how gifted you are, doesn't matter how good your sermons are, doesn't matter how many people you've led to Christ, doesn't matter what your last name is. This all must be done righteously. It all must be done justly and above board. And so with this ringing in our ears, I I would just ask you, over the last 10, 20 years in evangelicalism, how many times have we seen pastors get away with murder? Metaphorically speaking, I hope. I mean, think about it, for real. Because of the church... Or because of the elders, depending on how the, the, again, depending on the church polity, how the church is governed. Because the church wouldn't use just weights and measures. How many high-profile pastors have we seen fall? How many times have we seen their sin, in effect, excused away? It seems like every time one of these celebrity pastors falls, you find out that those in leadership had knew about this stuff, and they had known about it for years, but they did nothing. They swept it under the rug. They turned a blind eye. In a very profound sense, they refused to deal with the passage in front of us. Now, I don't know why that is. I don't presume to know hearts, nor do I presume to know all the details of every case. But I think that we can lean into some common threads. There are are some common things that we can suspect here. It seems to me that often these high-profile leaders are given a pass because of their charismatic personality or because of their unique ability to communicate God's Word in very clear and compelling ways. They might get a pass because they are the face of the brand or because it is their presence that puts rear ends in seats. They might get a pass because they are the figurehead of the movement. Really, at the end of the day, they are given a pass and their sin is explained away because they are just too much an asset for the kingdom of God. At least that's how the story goes. But Scripture shakes its head. To return to verse 17, just as elders who rule well are to be worthy of compensation, so those same elders who don't rule well are to be worthy of correction. And let me just say real quick, because I don't want to skip this, and I I don't want to muddy this up in any of your minds. Are we, as Christians, secure in Christ? Does Christ truly save us? Is the gospel enough? Can we rest in Christ? Are we robed in Christ's righteousness so that we really are completely just and holy and perfect in God's sight? And the answer to each of those questions is a confident, loud, and joy-filled yes. And while all of that is true, brothers and sisters, 
the gospel at the same time does compel us to walk in repentance. In fact, it is repentance that gives fruit of the gospel actually taking root in our lives. That makes sense? Our repentance does not save us, but it does reveal a heart that has been saved. We should say from the housetop, Christ is good. He's forgiving. He's patient. He's full of love and mercy and grace. He really does take away our sins by the blood of his cross and and he fits us with his own righteousness so that we can stand in God's presence. His life is our perfection. His death is our hope. His resurrection is our assurance. His intercession is our anchor. That's all true and amen. But none of this neuters church discipline or the need for repentance, or the authority of the church. This is true of elders, and it is true of church members alike. This all brings us then to the last order of the exciting topic of church polity this morning. We've seen how to compensate an elder and how to correct an elder. How do you choose an elder? When it comes to to who's an elder and who's not, are we left to our own devices at this point? Or does Christ have something to say? And the answer is yes, Christ does have something to say. And in a word, this is what Christ would tell us. Go slow. Be patient. Pump the brakes. That's really the force, the weight of verse 22. When it comes to choosing elders, we are told, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Now, this idea of laying on of hands, that's what the early church did, and it was how the early church recognized that a man was called to the ministry. This was not, I repeat, not the way that like, somehow the early church would magically confer special grace or special power to a man or something like that. No. But they would lay hands on a man, and it was the church's way of saying, yes, we see gifts in this man. We we want to affirm and encourage what God is doing in this man. And so we are going to put hands on him. We're going to identify with him. We're going to publicly recognize that this man is suited for ministry. But again, the point is, push the pedal on the left, not the right. Go slow. Don't be hasty in this. Don't be hasty in this because, as we already saw from 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, the qualifications for the elder, they are almost all what? Character qualifications. And as we said then, character counts. And to evaluate character takes time. You can't evaluate the character of a man for ministry over a long weekend. As you've heard me say many times before, truth and time go hand in hand. And so it's evalu- and to eval- so therefore to evaluate a man for ministry, to test his character, to see what he's really like. Be patient. 
be patient. Now, some of us might be tempted to go, well, why not throw caution to the wind? Why not just trust God? Well, not only does an unqualified or disqualified elder do major damage to the people of God, and not only would such an elder end up being disciplined, which would just rock the church and and wound it deeply, verse 22 adds, do not be hasty in in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. What's going on here? I, I think the best way to understand what Paul means there is something like this. He's saying, Timothy, I want you to be very cautious in appointing elders. Don't be too quick to lay hands on just any old man. I I want you to know, Timothy, how serious Christ takes all of this. And, and this is the point, Timothy, if you call a man to this work, whether you do so through negligence, not taking your time, or whether you do so by taking your time and just sort of, you know, winking away at the sin and not seeing it, know this, Timothy, you will share in his sins. You will become complicit in all of this. Maybe just to go at it sort of down and dirty, what Paul is saying is you don't get a pass for disobeying Scripture. The stakes are too high. Do your homework. Pump the brakes. That's the flavor. Now, with this in mind, with this injunction to remain pure and to keep oneself clean, and perhaps in light of the qualification for an elder to be, 1 Timothy 3.3, not a drunkard, we come to this parenthetical statement in verse 22, rather verse 23. We, We don't know all of the details, but it seems that what is going on here is that Timothy is suffering from some sort of physical ailment, some, some gut stuff. And in an effort to be above reproach, Timothy was apparently resolved to stay away from alcohol, that which would perhaps be of some benefit to him, medically speaking. That seems to be the context for verse 23's, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Paul is saying something like, I know you want to be pure and faithful. Timothy, I recognize that you want to be holy and and honoring before Christ and his church. But that doesn't mean you have to be a teetotaler. And especially given all the stuff going on with your gut, man, drink some wine. It would probably do some good for you. So keep in mind, Paul cautions Timothy, not about alcohol, but about elders. The caution here is not, be careful of alcohol, it's bad, though it can be abused, of course. The caution here is, go slow in selecting elders. He warns him in verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. In other words, when it comes to some prospective elders, you can cross them off the list right away. In fact, they probably shouldn't even be on the list. Why? Because you can see their sin from a mile away. 
Others, though, you don't quite see it right away. There are some, and perhaps among us, who have become quite adept at hiding our sin. So the apostolic word here is to be patient. Don't jump the gun. Likewise, the same is true for good works. Verse 25, so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Some men's character just stands out. It glows. You can see it clearly. And even those men who appear to be quiet or sort of go unnoticed, their godly character will eventually shine through as well. So, Timothy, rest assured, be be patient, brother. This is what Paul is saying. Christ, the chief shepherd, he will raise up shepherds for the sheep. And as we work our way to a conclusion, let me just pause and say that that we know that Christ will do that. We know that Christ will do that because Christ, the chief shepherd, he really does love us. He cares for us. It is that Advent season, so we remember that Christ was born to die for us. He lived a life that you and I could never live. He then died a sinner's death that each and every one of us deserve. If that wasn't enough, he was raised from the dead on the third day. And as we learned from the catechism this morning, he is right now sitting at the right hand of God the Father on our behalf, interceding for us. And... He promises that he will one day return to consummate his kingdom and to glorify all his saints. And so you know what? In the meantime, like right here and right now, you'd better believe he's watching over us and he's leading us and he's instructing us. In a moment, he will meet with us at the table and he will have communion with us. So what does all of this mean? It means that right now we can be patient and trust Christ. We can trust Christ for all of life, but specifically in the context of 1 Timothy 5, we can trust Christ to raise up shepherds for the sheep. As I said, I will concede to you that church polity isn't the most exciting thing in the world. But I hope what you have seen is that It is important. Whether you compensate your minister, how you correct wayward elders, or how you even choose elders, in all of this, we are not left to our own devices. This isn't a matter where we sort of lick our finger, stick it up in the air, and see which way the winds of culture are blowing. Well, we we have a clear and sufficient word from God on this matter. And even though church polity isn't the greatest thing, again, it is a good thing. It's a good thing because it protects the greatest thing. Here's what I mean. One of the sweetest gifts Christ can give to a church is qualified elders. And by that, I mean godly, Christ-like men who will model maturity and labor in preaching and teaching. Why is that so good for the church, you ask? Because these men aren't hirelings, but they're actual shepherds, which means that they will protect the church. They will protect you. They will guard the gospel, 
They will proclaim the gospel, and they will live in light of the gospel. And I hope you see, this is not only pleasing in Christ's sight, but it is good for redeeming grace as a whole. Join with me in prayer now. Our Father, we are a people who have received so abundantly from your hand good gifts of grace. Even this Advent season as we sing Christmas songs and we prepare to celebrate the birth of your Son, our Savior, we recognize that all we have done is received grace from your hand. And we would thank you this morning specifically for the grace of godly elders that you have uh, seen fit to supply, not just redeeming grace, but community Bible church, and then even going back further than that with uh, Trinity Church. And there's just been uh, no shortage of uh, graces that you've poured out upon local churches. And that's true not just here, but uh, all across our city and across our land. And so we thank you and pray that you would raise up more godly men. We pray for redeeming grace, that this would be a church that heralds the life-giving message of Christ, that you would continue to give us godly men. We pray for Dave and for his family and other future elders that we trust you are in the process of raising up. May this be pleasing in Christ's sight, and may it be good for us as a church. We pray all of these things in the name of the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, he who gave his life that we would have life. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.